Hi guys, it's Hannah. Welcome back for episode 5 of my podcast, The Hypochondriac's Guide. I spend a lot of time thinking about strange and terrible ways that I might die, and now, with the help of this podcast, you can too. Last week, we talked about a disease that is most prevalent in Southeast Asia. Today, we're going to talk about a disease that hits a little closer to home, the bacteria Francisella tularensis, more commonly known as tularemia. This disease has been reported in virtually every country in the Northern Hemisphere. Human cases of tularemia have been reported in every U.S. state except Hawaii. Although tularemia is fairly uncommon, generally only about 100 cases per year in the U.S., the number of cases tripled in 2015. There are several forms of tularemia. Although all are characterized by high fever, other symptoms vary depending on how the bacteria enter the body. If the bacteria enter the body through a cut or bite, they can cause lesions on the skin and swelling of the lymph nodes around the infected site. Tularemia bacteria can also infect the eye if a person touches their eye after touching a contaminated object, or infect the tissues of the throat if the person eats or drinks something contaminated. The most deadly form of tularemia occurs when a person breathes in airborne bacteria, and the bacteria take up residence in the lungs and cause difficulty breathing. This type of tularemia can kill up to 60% of those infected if proper treatment is not administered promptly. So how do you get tularemia? Tularemia is also known as rabbit fever. In the United States, rabbits and hares are the most common animal reservoirs for this bacteria. The bacteria can then be transmitted to people who interact with wild rabbits, usually through hunting. But if you think that you're safe because you never hang out with rabbits, think again. Tularemia infects over 100 species of wild and domestic mammals, as well as several species of birds. Although hikers and hunters are at higher risk for tularemia infection, you don't even have to go outside to get exposed. Domestic cats seem to be particularly susceptible to tularemia. One study in the U.S. found that 12% of domestic cats had antibodies against the bacteria, indicating that they had previously been infected. There have been several reported cases of humans contracting tularemia from infected cats. Furthermore, at least one child in the U.S. was infected with tularemia as a result of being bitten by a pet hamster. You can also get tularemia from tick bites and contaminated food and water. Even more strangely, mowing your lawn may put you at risk for tularemia. In an outbreak of tularemia in Martha's Vineyard in 2000, mowing lawns or cutting brush were determined to be significant risk factors for the development of tularemia infections in the lungs. A later study of the Martha's Vineyard population found that over 9% of landscapers had tularemia antibodies, compared with less than 1% of non-landscapers. The authors of these studies hypothesized that mowing lawns and other landscaping activities aerosolized bacteria that had been living in the soil, allowing the bacteria to become airborne and get breathed in by unfortunate nearby humans. As mentioned previously, tularemia infections in the lungs are very dangerous. Luckily, only one person died in the 2000 Martha's Vineyard lawn mowing associated outbreak. A more recent study in France found that, quote, the most frequent at-risk exposures reported by patients were outdoor leisure exposure to dust aerosols, such as gardening, jogging, or biking in the forest. This accounted for about 50% of the people who came down with tularemia in that study. So essentially, if you're a human who ever goes outside or interacts with other mammals, you might be at risk for tularemia. Although a vaccine for tularemia does exist, it's not available to the general population. It's only administered to high-risk individuals. 
Unlike diseases like rabies, where the vaccine can be administered after exposure, the tularemia vaccine does not offer any protection if it's given after the person is exposed to the bacteria. Antibiotics like streptomycin and doxycycline are highly effective treatments, but only if they are administered early in the course of the disease. Since tularemia is fairly rare and shares symptoms with dozens of other diseases, it's pretty easy to misdiagnose. Notably, there are cases where tularemia has been mistaken for pneumonia, tuberculosis, or lung cancer. Although obviously misdiagnoses are hard to track, one Swedish study found that the average doctor's delay, i.e. the time between the patient showing up at the hospital and the patient getting the correct diagnosis, was 6.7 days. So on average, there was nearly a week between the time that a patient showed up at the doctor's office and the time they received the correct diagnosis and appropriate treatment. Perhaps the scariest thing about tularemia is its potential for use as a biological weapon. Tularemia is insanely infectious. Inhaling as few as 10 individual bacteria can be enough to cause disease. For comparison, for anthrax, you would need to inhale about 10,000 bacteria to make you sick. The CDC classifies tularemia as a Category A biological weapon, which means that it's one of the agents that is the greatest risk to national security. This is the same category as smallpox, anthrax, the plague, and Ebola. The World Health Organization estimated that 110 pounds of aerosolized tularemia bacteria would cause over 19,000 deaths if released in a metropolitan area. Fascinatingly, tularemia may be one of the oldest known biological weapons. In the 14th century BCE, the Hittites sent diseased rams into the camps of their enemies in order to incapacitate them before battle. Although it's impossible to know exactly what biological agent the rams were infected with, it's widely believed that tularemia was the most likely agent. The modern history of tularemia as a biological weapon is even more terrifying. At various points in the 1900s, tularemia was weaponized and stockpiled by military programs in the United States, Japan, the former Soviet Union, and others. The infamous Japanese military unit, 731, used human prisoners to study the course of tularemia, as well as several other potentially deadly diseases, observing prisoners as they succumbed to the disease without providing any treatment. The United States Biological Weapons Program at Fort Detrick also intentionally gave tularemia to human subjects, although allegedly these were volunteers. Officially, government biological weapons programs have been decommissioned since the 1970s, but this does not preclude the use of biological weaponry by non-government groups. As with every infectious disease ever, one of the best things you can do to prevent tularemia is to wash your hands. Although in the unlikely event of a bioterrorism attack, you're pretty much screwed unless you have a doomsday bunker. That's it for this week. Thanks to Fleslet for this week's music. If you like this podcast, or if you didn't, please rate it and leave a comment on iTunes. Your feedback is really helpful. Thanks so much for listening to the Hypochondriac's Guide. See you next time.